Okay, so I told you last week that we were gonna we're gonna do Revelation five today. Um, do we we have fun going through the seven letters to the seven churches, and then we and then I was like, oh, we got to do these next two because they they really connect really well, and and now I'm like, okay, but chapter six and seven too are like awesome, and they really connect to what we're talking about this morning. So next week that's what we're gonna do. I can change my mind if I want. Um, so next week, we'll do six and seven. Uh, so that's a lot. So read ahead of time. I dare you. That's a challenge. So read that, read that ahead of time. Uh, again, just like the rest of Revelation, it's weird. It has lots of, of symbols and metaphors and images that you kind of have to, to just sort of experience and envision in your brain and, and just see it in your mind's eye. Um, in order to, to sort of capture what it is that John's trying to convey. So uh, don't, don't, don't read chapter 6 and 7 before next week and go, I, told, I, I don't get it, and now I'm frustrated. I don't understand. That's okay. Uh, we'll talk about it um, because it's, I think it's really cool. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to go through chapter 5 today. Again, lots of images, metaphors, uh, symbols, uh, things that we'll dive into uh, that, that all make a lot of sense. And I will say this, that that what, what this vision is about this morning, I think, um, and it's a bummer that it's on a, on a holiday weekend because we've got lots of people who aren't here, but this may be some of the most relevant stuff um, that we'll talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about the lion and the lamb, and I really believe that this is some of the most relevant stuff that we really have to get, and if we get it wrong... Well, um, we know what happens because we've seen it happen uh, over the last, I don't know how many years, um, you know, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute and all that will hopefully make sense <laughs> if I'm clear enough. Um, so before we read chapter five, you'll find it on the screen. You'll find it on the screen. Uh, you'll find it in front of you uh, if you've got it with you. But before we read it, let's pray uh, together. Uh, God, thank you for this time. Um, we're reminded that your word is, is powerful. We're reminded that your word is creative. Um, it's generative. We're reminded of the creation story where, where into the chaos, uh, into the whatever that cosmic muck was at the beginning of the beginning, uh, you spoke a word. And creation exploded into existence. You created order out of chaos. You created beauty. You created life um, in all its diversity and awesomeness. Your word, by your word. And so this morning, as we enter into your word, we ask that you do that again, that you would speak, that you would create something new, that you would you would generate things that you would transform us um, into what you want us to be. People who look and act and live and love like Jesus. We ask this in all humility. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw... 
in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. standing at the center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang, they sang a new song. This is a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll. You are worthy to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. How comprehensive and beautiful and diverse is that? Oh, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. Yes. So let it be. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We'll go that far. Zaya, how cool is that? Like, did you see it? Did you picture it? Did you use your imagination? Did you, were you there? It's kind of hard because it's so weird, but it's really beautiful and really, really deep. And it's just dripping with the only kind of meaning that will ever transform the world. It's dripping with the only thing that will change anything. Before we get into it, let's remember where we've been. Let's remember the people to whom John is writing. 
Let's remember that this is a letter. John is a pastor. Where, where are we in the letter? Who are these people he's writing to? So John is writing to early followers of Jesus in Asia Minor under the rule of the Roman Empire, right? And the Roman Empire at this point is really, really strong. So these early followers of Jesus would have been under, under constant pressure, constant pressure to sort of participate in the cult of the empire, to worship Caesar, right? They would have been under constant pr- pressure to sort of uh, participate in the religious festivals and the religious ceremonies that were dedicated to the worship of all sorts of different gods and goddesses. And these festivals and ceremonies were, were intimately tied to business practices and economics. So if they didn't participate, they would be seen as weird, as odd, as different. They would really be seen as a threat to the very fabric of society. They would be marginalized. People would no longer do business with them because they were these religious, weird, fanatic people, right? So they would lose the very means that they had to provide food for their families. So some of them would lose their businesses, right? Some of them would be arrested. Some of them would be beaten. Some of them would be thrown in jail. Some of them would even be executed. So the pressure was real. It was constant. It would have had a suffocating feel to it. We've talked about all of this before. So they're living in this world where it's like, oh my goodness, how do we follow Jesus in a world like this? It's like really, really hard. And so John in chapter four gives them this vision of God on the throne. And it's almost like, remember, apocalyptic literature, apocalypse means you're unveiling that which is really hard to see. You're like pulling back the curtain, the veil between heaven and earth, and he's showing you what really exists. He's saying essentially it's sometimes really hard to see, but there's a whole lot more going on in this world than we can see, hear, touch, or we realize. Through, God, through this vision, God is essentially saying, you think Rome rules? Like you think the world as it is, the powers that be, you think they have a throne? No, no, no. Caesar only has a throne because I've given Caesar a throne for a little while, but my throne, my throne is the only one that matters. And so John gives them this vision of God on the throne. God is the one who rules. And surrounding the throne are these weird, like weird creatures. They look all odd and they represent all of creation. What are they doing? From last week, remember, they're worshiping. They, all of creation points beyond itself, right, to someone greater, the creator. Surrounding the living creatures are the 24 elders. You've got 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel. You've got 12 representing the disciples. So this, the followers of Jesus. So so this is the God that we're talking about here. The God who worked through Israel. The God who worked decisively in the person of Jesus. And now God who continues to work through Jesus' followers, the church in the world. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. So in spite of all that's going on in the world, despite of all the pressures we're under, in spite of All of that, this is an invitation to worship. This is an invitation to to recognize God as the center. This is an invitation to, to sort of give your life wholly and completely in total trust to the creator, to the one who really rules, to the one who holds all things together. Remember, it's really hard to see, but that's what John says. That's really real. That's reality. 
So now we get to this vision. We get to sort of a, a continuation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, which, meant, which means this is a total comprehensive thing we have going on here. It's written all over it on both sides of the scroll. Not just one side, both sides. This is a comprehensive thing. And it's sealed with seven seals. What is that? What is this scroll? And why is it sealed with a seal? What's happening here? So this is like, I'll explain it like this. This is like a great, this is like a great architect holding up a, holding up a scroll, big rolled up plans for like this big, beautiful, gorgeous piece of architecture. Right? Or this is like a, this is like a, a general holding a comprehensive battle plan for a campaign, a military campaign. It's like this rolled up plan. This is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be accomplished, right? So what's in this scroll, the one who's sitting on the throne? Why does the one who's sitting on the throne have a scroll? And what's it a plan for? And, and if it's really this comprehensive, it, it must be comprehensive. What, what, what's contained in there must be really important if, if God on the throne is holding this scroll. So what is it? It's God's plan to overthrow and undo the world-destroying powers at work in the world. It's God's plan to rescue all of creation and make things right again. It's a plan that says this world is headed somewhere good and beautiful. The angel says, who's worthy to open it? Who's worthy to open this scroll? This is a big deal. Who's worthy? So in the ancient world, the only one who could open a rolled up scroll like this with plans was the person who had the power and the authority to actually enact the plans that were happening, that were laid out in the scroll, right? So if there was a scroll that was sealed and it was for a, a great grand piece of architecture, the only one who could open it and enact the plan was the architect in charge of it all. If the plan was for a, cam a military campaign, the only one who could crack the seal and open the thing up and was the person who could enact the plan. So we're talking about the general or the commander, right? So the only one who can act, enact, open this thing is the one who can enact it, make it a reality and make it happen. And then we learn that John begins to weep. He begins to weep for two reasons. First, there's no one worthy to open this scroll. There's no one worthy to open the scroll and enact God's plan to rescue the world. Israel couldn't do it. Like if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that they were always making a mess of things. They were always going against what God wanted them to do. John knows that he himself can't do it. He knows he's not worthy, and no one else can do it either because we've all contributed to the destruction of God's good creation by the things we've thought, by the things we've said, by the things we've done, by the things we've left undone. We've all made a mess of things. We've all failed. We've all messed things up. So he's weeping because no one's worthy. He's also weeping because God's plan to rescue the world apparently won't be enacted. Like, he weeps because this world isn't headed somewhere good 
and beautiful. In fact, it's headed, it's headed for destruction. And we're the ones doing it. We're the ones causing the destruction. But then when the elder stands up and says, hold up, wait a sec. No, no, this isn't over yet. Don't weep. See, the lion is here. Who doesn't want a lion working on their behalf? That big, ferocious beast who can do whatever it wants. The lion is here. From the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion is here. Oh, we got some really good Old Testament stuff going on here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 49, you can do that later. Or if you want to now, I'm not going to stop you. You'll learn that, that Judah is described as a lion cub. The root of David part of this comes from Isaiah 11. See, here's what the ancient rabbis taught. The ancient rabbis taught that a great warrior king was going to come. was going to come in like a lion. And this great warrior king would come in like a lion from the, from the tribe of, of, from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, and wipe out the Roman Empire. Totally wipe it out and give Israel its pop, proper place of world domination again. Like the lion is here. Everyone in Asia Minor, Minor hearing this for the very first time would have been thinking about all these things that the ancient rabbis taught. And they would have been thinking, yeah, the lion is here. Let's go smoke those Romans. Let's make it happen. Finally, we're going to get it done. So John hears that a lion is here. Remember, he's weeping. He's sad. He's desperate because because no one is worthy to open the scroll. God's plan to renew all things, to make things right again. He's weeping. He's got his head down and he hears the lion is here. He hears the lion is here. And then he looks up and what does he see? He hears a lion. He looks up. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. The Lamb is victorious. The Lamb is on the throne. John hears the lion is here. But when he looks up, he sees not a lion, but a lamb. A slaughtered lamb. That's curious. He hears a lion is here. He looks up and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. Not just any lamb, but a little lamb. Not just any little lamb, but a little lamb that bears the marks of slaughter. That bears the mark of of sacrifice. In other words, God is transforming the world, making all things new, not the way we would expect. Not through violence and brute force, control and manipulation but through self-sacrificing, self-giving love. 
come on. It is so good. He's expecting a lion because we all want the lion. We want the, you want a lion or a slaughtered lamb to fight on your behalf? Which one? Which do you choose? Like you choose a lion every time. Every time. Because a lion's going to make it happen because that's the way the world works. That's the way you make things happen. That's the way you change things. That's the way we do it. We bring about the things we want. We do it by, by lying, by deceiving, by manipulation, by violence, by brute force, by control, by manipulation. That's the way we get done what we want to get done. We put our guy in the most powerful seat in the world, and it doesn't matter how he does it, as long as he does what we think is right, it's fine. We use manipulation to get our people on the bench so that we can create laws to force everybody to live the way we want them to live. That's how we do things. We use control. We use violence. We use manipulation. That's what we do. But God says, you know what? Uh Uh-uh. That's not how I work in the world. God says, nope. It's not how things change. God says, nope. It's not how the world gets transformed. The world is transformed, changed, made new through self-sacrificing, self-giving, humiliating love. The kind of love that Jesus showed, you know, on the cross. Now, some say Jesus has two roles. He's got the role of the lamb, and he's got the role of the lion, right? First, if you respond to the role of the lamb, the love of the lamb, oh, it's so happy and cuddly and beautiful. If you respond to the love of the lamb, then you continue to get treated with the love of the lamb. But for those who don't respond to the love of the lamb, you get the apocalyptic violence of the lion. That's not what this vision is about. We can make it that if we want it to. We can make this thing say what we want it to say. But if you're paying attention, that's not what this vision is about. No, no, no. In this vision, the lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. The transformation of the world will be completed. It's a lion-like victory. Oh, yeah. But it won't come through violence and brute force, through manipulation and control. The transformation of the world doesn't come through authoritarian rule. No, it will be accomplished through self-sacrificing, self-giving love. So you know what happens when you worship a God like that? A God who leads with self-sacrificing, self-giving love. You, you know what happens? When you give yourself completely to that God, you get transformed. You get changed. You get made new. It's all part of God's plan. Right? Listen to the song that they sing. Again, they sang a new song. Why is it a new song? Because it's not the song that gets sung out there all the time, which is we change things through violence and brute force and we make it happen because we're right and everybody else is wrong. No, this is a new song. This is new. It's different and it's much more beautiful. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. 
And with your blood, you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's beautifully comprehensive and diverse and amazing. Jesus purchased people through self-sacrificing love. That's who we are now. Through his sacrifice, we are loved and accepted and forgiven. We now belong to God. That is our new identity, period, full stop. But it also goes beyond that, so not period, full stop. There's more. It's more comprehensive. It has also made us into a kingdom. It's made us into a community of people who belong to God. And we are now agents of the kingdom of God who reflect God's self-sacrificing love to the world. God has made us also priests, it says. All of us. Doesn't matter what gender you are. You are now a priest. And what do priests do? Priests connect people to God. That's their job. That's their role. They connect people to to the divine. We are now a conduit through which the self-sacrificing, self-giving love of God is given to the world. You know what Jesus said in the Gospel of John? He said this, the world will know that you are my people by the way that you judge them, by your moralism, by the way that you tell them what they can and cannot do with their lives and their bodies. And if you don't, then you tell them where they go if they disobey. That's not what he said. No. He said, the world will know that you belong to me. The world will know that you're my people by your love. By your love. This is a game changer. We are a kingdom, a community. We are priests, a conduit through which the self-sacrificing, self-giving love is given freely to the world. It's given freely. Not forced upon, it's given freely to the world. And that makes things really hard. Like, I want that to sound all cuddly. Like, I want to cuddle up next to a warm fire under a blanket and be like, oh, it's so nice, but it makes things hard. Makes it really hard. I mean, there's good news there. Really, really good news there. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter what we've left undone, we are loved and accepted and forgiven by the creator of all things. We belong to God. It's such good news. We get to be a conduit through which that love is given to the world. That is our new identity. We are fundamentally different, changed. But here's the thing. Just like those early people in the churches in Asia Minor, later on this afternoon or tomorrow, we're going to be out there with all sorts of things coming at us from all sorts of different angles that will try to convince us that we're someone else that we have a different identity and we'll feel the tension, we'll feel the pressure, we'll experience the anxiety. Because listen, out there, we're told that fundamentally we are consumers. We're consumers. That's who we are. That's our identity. The more things we have and the better things we have, the better life will be and the higher status we'll get. And that creates inside of us a certain sense of a certain sense of anxiety 
Because we're always looking, we're always looking to acquire more. We're always looking to acquire better. And I've talked about this numerous times, but how many of us have that one thing? It's like that one next thing that we want. You know, think of the thing that you want now. It's that one thing that you want. And, and if you get it, you think to yourself, that's going to make things better. It's going to make life awesome. Think about that one thing. But here's the problem with this thing. Once you acquire it, you get it, and life is really great for a while, and you enjoy it. And then, and then pretty soon you start to realize, oh, wait, there's this other thing. There's this next thing that I want. And then, and then that anxiety returns. It's back. Well, how do we get released from that sense of anxiety? How do we get released from that? We're released by remembering our true identity, that we are loved and accepted and forgiven, and that we get to be a conduit of love out there, that the things we have don't matter, but it's the love that we've been given and the love that we give. Those are the things that really, 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 really matter. That's our identity now. Out there in work, at work, at school, possibly at home, we're told that we're producers. This is the world we live in. We're producers. And it's all merit-based. And it creates a certain sense of anxiety within us because we tie our identity to this. If you do your job, you get paid. If you don't do your job, you get fired. If you do your job really, really well and you go above and beyond, you might get a promotion and you might get paid more. If you just kind of half, you know what it out there and you don't do your job very well, like you're going to get demoted, you might get paid less, or you might get fired. It's all merit-based, and it creates inside of us a certain sense of anxiety. But in here, we're reminded that no matter what we've done, we are loved and accepted and forgiven, and we now get to be that kind of people in the world that the measure of our worth has already been given to us. God already loves us. We are worth a whole lot. It doesn't matter how much we produce. Out there, we're taught that we have to choose and that everything is black and white. We have to be right or we have to be left. We have to be conservative or we have to be progressive. We have to be Republican or we have to be Democrat. We have to be pro-life or we have to be pro-choice. And that creates in us a certain sense of anxiety. And then we come in here and we're reminded that no matter how loud we are because we're right, no matter how loud and how forceful we are at forcing our opinions on everybody else, if we have not love, we're nothing more than a, a, a banging gong or a clanging cymbal that's really loud and noisy and obnoxious and everybody begins to tune out anyway. In here, we're reminded that no, love demands more. Love makes things gray. It's not black and white. Love demands a certain sense of humility and a willingness to listen to others, a willingness to learn, a willingness to change, a willingness to enter into discussions that that need a whole lot more nuance. In here, we're reminded that the only thing we're pro is love. 
love. That's our identity. It's not out there. We feel the anxiety. And it's hard. It's not easy. But Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, it's revolutionary stuff if we let it be. It's this great grand vision and invitation to worship. It's an invitation to recognize, to recognize God as your center. An invitation to surrender your life in complete trust to the one who gave his life in love for you so that you would be transformed into an agent of that love in the world. It's an invitation to accept the gift of grace, an invitation to accept the gift of love, the gift of forgiveness. And when you do, you get transformed. Have you given your life to that? Will you? Day in and day out. We're a kingdom, a community. Let's do it together. You're not alone. Let's pray.